And we're back with this week's uh, episode of Swadeshi Videshi, sponsored by the University of Oxford Student Union. I'm proud that this week's guest is none other than Member of Parliament, Beach Thumbram. Sir, it's an honor to have you on the show today. I wanted to ask first and foremost, is you've been a vocal critic of the GST implementation that has been done by the uh, government in power today. I wanted to know why are you such a vocal critique and where do you think the BGP government has failed in its implementation? Thank you. GST was an idea that was first mooted by the Congress government. In fact, I announced our intention to introduce GST in February 2006 in the budget speech. World over, GST is one tax, one rate. It's kept at a moderate rate of tax. And the idea is to subsume all taxes under GST. The BJP was a stout, strong opponent of the GST. In fact, uh, they opposed it both in principle as well as when we tried to introduce a bill. A bill was eventually introduced, but they prevented us from passing the bill until our term came to an end. After the BJP came to power, miraculously, they seemed to have changed their view on GST, which I welcome, and they introduced a GST bill. In the run-up to the bill, and when the bill was discussed in Parliament, we pointed out numerous flaws in the design of the GST, in the GST law, and the manner in which they propose to implement it. Let me make it clear, we are not opposed to GST as an idea, as a principle. We are opposed to the flawed GST which this government has introduced and implemented, creating so much disturbance and uh, disruption, sending thousands of micro and small businesses uh, into debt and many of them have closed down and destroying thousands of jobs during the process of implementation. Now why am I against the GST law as being implemented by the BGP government? First, it is not one rate. They've got at least eight rates of tax. Number two, it does not subsume all the taxes. K 
key sectors like petroleum and petroleum products, electricity and construction are kept out of GST. These three sectors account for a very, very large part of GDP, almost 40% of India's GDP. That's kept out of GST. Number three, the procedure for complying with GST is mind-boggling. One has to fill three forms a month, three returns a month, amounts to 36 returns plus an annual return, 37 a year, in every state that you are operating. So if one is operating in 10 states, one has to fill out 370 returns. If one is operating all over India, an all India business, it has to fill out something like over a thousand returns. Finally, the GST rate is not a moderate rate. They've got rates of 28, they've got rates of 40, they've got cesses. So this is not GST. They can call this animal by any other name, but why call it GST and give GST a bad name? The only purpose of government seems to be to squeeze the last drop of money from every business, which is why there is huge protest against the manner in which GST is being implemented. These are the reasons why we are opposing the flawed and hurried implementation of GST by the BJP government. Uh, just to follow up on the GST, uh, you as an individual Rajya Sabha member, um, are you at all um, in hopes of productively working with the current government to implement it better? No, they don't take our suggestions. Mm -hmm. Go back and look at the debate in the Rajya Sabha where I pleaded with them to cap the rate at not exceeding 18%. They declined. Mm -hmm. We asked them to send the bill to a committee to iron out the flaws. They declined. We pointed out other drafting errors. They refused to take he, uh, pay attention to them. And since then, they have not even invited the Congress party or other opposition parties for a discussion of how to improve the uh, administration of the law. They seem to think that they are in government and they can do what they like. What do you think has been the top three of the biggest failures of the Modi government, in your opinion? Well, the first one is they are divisive politics. Sir. The country today is more divided than what it was, say, five years ago. A government is supposed to unite people, not divide people. They win elections by polarization and divisive politics. Apart from other failings, if a government fails the people, and doesn't unite them, but divides them. That is the worst thing that can happen to a country. Secondly, large sections of the people have been immiserized by the wrong policies of the government and live in fear. Today, Dalits, Minorities, youth in search of jobs, women who are concerned about their safety, children, especially the girl child, 
who seems to be under attack. The scheduled tribes whose rights have not been given and whatever little rights they had are being taken away. Every one of them is extremely angry with this government. You know, large sections of your people are resentful and live in fear. That's an indictment of the government. And thirdly, they are incompetent economic managers. They inherited an economy which, according to their own accounts, own numbers was growing at 6.3%. And then by the wrong policies and inadequate understanding of how the developing economy works, they have brought us to a situation where, one, credit growth is the lowest in over 20 years. Investments have touched a lowest point. The gross fixed capital formation has fallen by as many as five to six percentage points. More industries are closed or stalled today than they were five years ago. And there are no jobs. There's hardly any sector which creates jobs. So they've brought the economy to this pass. And therefore, I think this government has been a comprehensive failure. And I think that the people are waiting to throw out this government in 2019. Yes, sir. Now, I want to switch a little past a little bit because the show is geared towards uh, dat young diaspora members, students specifically studying abroad from India. Um, I wanted to ask... Well, I don't... Um, understand this word diaspora. I mean, I was a student abroad. I didn't regard myself as diaspora. You see, there are two kinds of, well, three kinds of Indians abroad. One is people of Indian origin who have migrated. Either the present generation of their forefathers, they are citizens of those countries. I think their primary interest is in the country of which they are citizen, of course they can have a fondness for India and a connect with India. But they are primarily citizens of another country and they live and work in another country. I don't think they have a real role to play in India's politics or India's political economy. You can have a distant interest in the matter. The second kind of Indians are people who have migrated temporarily for work or for study. Two years, four years, five years. There are thousands of them in the Middle East, for example. There are thousands in Singapore, Malaysia, uh, the United States, some countries of Europe. UK included. They are people who are there because they need the jobs or they need the opportunity to study. And hopefully they will come back to India. So they have a genuine interest in what's happening in India. And I think it's important to connect with them because eventually they'll come back to India. The third category falls in between. People have gone abroad 
mainly to study, but are undecided whether they will return to India or that they will stay back in a foreign country. Now to them, all I can say is, the world is small, the world has shrunk. And I think while citizenship is important, many people regard themselves as global citizens today, especially professionals. They regard themselves as global citizens. And anyone who wishes to advance professionally, uh, sharpen his skills as a professional, and achieve professionally, I think is free and must be free to work in any, any part of the world. He may visit India from time to time, but that doesn't mean he should not work in any part of the world where he can maximize his um, professional skills. They, of course, are looking for opportunities back in India. To category two and category three, all I can say is there are opportunities in India. At the moment, they are limited opportunities, but the situation need not continue forever. There could be a time when more opportunities will open up in India. And when there are opportunities in India, I think those who live and work abroad should return to India and try to build India. Yes, sir. And to end this interview, I just had one last question. Uh, you started off the previous question by saying that you yourself was a student abroad. And I just wanted to know about, uh, slightly about your own personal um, upbringing and background. And just quickly, what made you decide after going to law school here in India that you would go and pursue an MBA from Harvard Business School, besides well, the name? <laughs> well, I was only 20 plus when I finished law school. And I was not ready to start work or join the family business. I had an option of pursuing a master's in law. But the family felt that I should take a master's in business administration so that I come back to join the family business and grow that business. I don't regret that decision. I went to the best business school then, and perhaps even now, and I was very happy to get an MBA degree. But when I came back to India, I found that um, in the 1960s and early 70s, uh, in a family business, where there are other members of the family, uh, there's very limited scope for somebody who has an MBA degree from Harvard. And anyway, I felt that my inclinations were towards law rather than business. So I went back to practice law. I don't regret the MBA degree. It's been a, a great help to me in my uh, later career. But I've enjoyed the practice of law. Thank you so much. It's great to hear that. Thank you. All the best. All right. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. And so sorry, I was no, no problem. Thank you.